Well, Carl, thank you so much, brother, for being on the Defending Confirmed podcast. We're supremely thankful to have you on the show. I mean, you are just a true celebrity in evangelicalism. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I could just, I could just, I could do with the money. I don't mind. I don't want the celebrity status. I can right. just do with the cash. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, can can you just do us a favor uh, in case our listeners haven't heard of you if they're, if they're just too busy like reading David Platt books and, and watching John Piper <laughs> could you uh, could you just tell us a little bit about who you are and, and why we would have you on the show yeah um, I'm Carl Truman I'm a, a, a ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church I've pastored a OPC church in Philadelphia for some years I taught at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia for 16 years after that, I did a year's fellowship at Princeton University, and since 2018, I've been professor uh, at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, and I'm also a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And I think you're having me on because of my most recent book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern South, which is an attempt to uh, help Christians and other interested parties understand the sexual revolution in terms of much broader changes within the culture that have taken place over the last few hundred years. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. So, um, you, you, you right there got us started on the right foot. You, you've, you've told us the aim of the book, right? To, to help, uh, really anyone, but particularly Christians understand the sexual revolution. Uh, you, you do a good job in your book of, of showing how the sexual revolution didn't cause the sexual revolution. Um, but can you, I mean, this book is really dense. Our listeners, they listen to us, so they're not that bright. Uh, can you, in, in as succinct of a fashion as possible, uh, summarize the main argument uh, of the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self? Sure, well, I can give it a try. Yeah, uh, I think there are, two, there are two mistakes that Christians commonly make relative to the sexual revolution. First of all, they, they underestimate the nature of the sexual revolution. Um, by sexual revolution, I'm talking about the massive change in uh, behavior, sexual behavior, sexual thinking since the 1960s. One mistake that Christians make is that they think the sexual revolution is about behavior. What has happened in the last few decades is that the what I would describe as the canon of acceptable sexual practices has been expanded to include other things. Mm. Uh, that's a mistake because I think what that does is it underestimates what the sexual revolution is about. The sexual revolution is not about uh, just expanding what is legitimate to do, what it's legitimate for human beings to do in society. It actually involves a fundamental change in how we think about sex. Uh, sex has emerged as, or sexual desire is a fundamental foundation of, of human identity in the way we think about ourselves. Mm. So it's not that uh, in the past homosexual acts were wrong and now that they're, now they're legal. It's that in the past homosexuality was a set of acts that could be performed now homosexuality is an identity that is claimed and affirmed. So there's yeah, sexual desires as fundamentally definitive of who we are. So that's the first mistake. Evolution is all about behavior. No, it's actually all about identity and how we think about what it is to be a human being. The second mistake is to think that it, it all happened in the 60s 
or if not the 60s, it was all started by Hugh Hefner, founding Playboy in the 50s. Right. Whereas in actual fact, uh, the sexual revolution of the 50s and the 60s is really a symptom or a function of a much deeper change in how human beings think about what it means to be human that has taken place over the last three or 400 years. And essentially it's this, and this is putting in a very simple, blunt terms, but uh, but I think helpful big picture. Essentially what's happened in the last three or 400 years is that human beings have come to think of themselves more and more in terms of their feelings and their desires and less and less in terms of their outward connection to other people and institutions and things like that. And, and would that uh, be what point, you call the age of the therapeutic? Yeah, it feeds into the age. What it does, it ultimately leads to the therapeutic age because okay. if your desires and feelings are the thing that is most fundamentally you, then what happens over time is you begin to understand the world in a different way. Uh, I'm going to use an example. When I went to school, I went to school. We all wore uniforms. Uh, discipline was pretty strict. Well, the purpose of school uniforms and of strict discipline is not to allow the individual members of the school to express themselves. It's to crush individuality, to put it in rather blunt terms, to right. make you part of a larger whole. The institution, if you like, was a place of formation. Mm. What we've seen emerging very rapidly over the last 20, 30 years as we come to really accent our inner feelings is that institutions have become places of performance. They've become places where we're allowed to express ourselves and perform. And that takes you to the heart of the therapeutic society where in the therapeutic exist to help me realize my own inner potential, if you could put it that way, right. rather than to form me to being a, a part or a member of something bigger than myself. Wow. It sounds like the plot of uh, every Pixar Disney movie. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so, um, and Russell, feel free to just jump in, brother. I have a list of questions here that I've just been dying to ask. I, I get to talk every time we record a podcast. Yeah. It's not common to uh, to have a guest of this magnitude, so I'm yeah. mostly going to sit quietly while he talks. <laughs> yeah, and by hey, magnitude... you guys make me feel really... I, you, you, I'll come back anytime. Really, really <laughs> yeah. good about myself. Uh, so my wife needs to hear this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell her that we're huge fans. Um, so when when you say that the cultural uh, that the sexual revolution didn't begin in the '60s or even in the '50s or the '40s, it's it's part of a, a, a long process that began 200 years ago. There's there's a sort of etymology that you do in the rise and triumph of the modern self, where you walk us through the various figurehead thinkers who have contributed to the development of our current state, right? The, the sexual revolution and what has come after it. So uh, you walk from the Romantics and Rousseau to Darwin, Nietzsche, Freud, Marx, Marcuse, second wave feminism. Uh, uh, can you help us sketch for us as broadly as you yeah. can, just that, that history, that lineage yeah. 200 years old yeah, to, the, to the present? Sure. I mean, if I were to boil the, the story down in some basic elements, I would say, well, first of all, think about the statement, I'm a, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. What does that statement say? The fact that that statement is plausible tells us that we live in a world where feelings, inside inner feelings, have more authority than our bodies. Right. Well, the story is how do we get there? And, and first of all, the first thing that has to happen is that inner space, 
those feelings have to be given great authority. And that, you know, you can trace that back. But I start the story with Rousseau and the Romantics because they're the ones who really think that, well, who really argue that, you know, the person you are is the person you are. And it's with Rousseau and the Romantics that we get, we start to see the whole notion of authenticity emerging. What makes somebody authentic is, well, they're able to act outwardly that which they feel inwardly. Think of Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner's interview with Diane Sawyer in 2015. If you read that interview, uh, Jenner talks about, he talks in terms of now I'm free to be the person I always have been. Now I no longer have to conform to the outward expectations of society. It's all about the authority, the inner. Uh, well, we really see that starting uh, in a big way with Rousseau and the Romantics. Uh, but the great thing about Rousseau and the Romantics is their thinking on what it means to be a human being doesn't degenerate into pure subjectivism. It doesn't become a complete free-for-all because they believe that there is such a thing as human nature. Now, what do they mean by that? They don't just mean that, that human beings are biologically distinguished from ducks and swans and fish, etc. They mean that all human beings possess a, a moral structure, we might say. There's something that is a moral structure there such that if I find my inner self, it's going to be morally very similar to your inner self. We're going to be empathetic. We're going to be kind to each other, et cetera, et cetera. There is such a thing as human nature. Mm -hmm. What happens in the 19th century is that uh, a, a host of thinkers, and I happen to pick in the book three, Marx, Nietzsche, and Darwin, but there are others, come along and say, in their different ways, this idea that human nature has any constant, stable moral structure, that's a myth. Mm. That's a bit of you know, Judeo-Christian nonsense that, that's used to normalize and impose certain behaviors on people. So in the 19th century, you get rid of the idea of human nature as having a moral structure. Then along comes Freud. And Freud sort of builds on the romantics to this extent. And he says, you know, yeah, the person you are is your inner desires. But, but he gives two distinctive twists to that. First of all, your deepest inner desires are the ones that you suppress. Mm. They sort of hover around in, in, the, in the unconscious. Occasionally they burst through. For most of us, that occurs in dreams. Mm. Uh, but, but most of the time, these, these deepest desires, the people we really are, that exists at the level of the unconscious. And the second twist that Freud gives to this, he said, and, and the thing that characterizes those desires is their sexual in nature. Mm. that really it's sexual desire that characterizes who you really are. And in doing that, what Freud does is he turns sex from primarily something you do into something you are. You know, you read the Bible, there's plenty of sex goes on in the Bible, some of it's legitimate, some of it's illegitimate, but at no point in the Bible is anybody identified in terms of their sexual desire. Mm. You think about today, you could have a child or friend who comes out and says, tells you, I'm gay, they may never have had a sexual experience in their entire life mm -hmm. because they're not yeah. talking about an act or an experience. They're talking about an orientation of desire. Yeah. Uh, and Freud's the key man on that. And then once, of course, once sex becomes identity, it's inevitable that sex becomes political because one of the, you know, the hallmarks of societies throughout the ages at the center of their, their law codes have typically been laws about what is and is not legitimate sexual behavior. It's a way of guarding family units, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, once sex is identity, then laws that 
define what is and is not legitimate sexual activity are actually laws that define what kind of person society acknowledges as legitimate and what sort of person it will not identify as legitimate. And that's why there's so much sexual politics today, because uh, to, to oppose, say, gay marriage is not in the, the mind of today's society a, a, a pattern of behavior. It's to say to the people who want to get married, you're second class citizens. We don't acknowledge you as being as legitimate as us. So that's the sort of story in a nutshell. And and hopefully as people read the book or if I can get a quick commercial plug in, I've got a short version coming out next year yes. for people who don't want to read the big book. Uh, hopefully it will help people to understand A, why politics is so crazy at the moment. And B, I, I hope on a pastoral level, uh, help Christians talk to their kids, talk to their friends who are wrestling and struggling with this stuff in a way that uh, they understand more where their kids and friends are coming from. Not they agree with them, but they actually understand the dynamics so they can actually have the discussion at the point where it needs to take place. That's fantastic. One of the, uh, the observations that you make early on in the book that I, I found profoundly helpful is that the average person who would agree with or, or understand the statement I am a woman trapped in a man's body is not affirming that that worldview because of uh, a, a rational argument that they've reasoned from first principles. And, you know, they don't know the history of these ideas. They're just intuiting. Mm -hmm. They're just yeah. agreeing with with uh, what you use the term social imaginary. You use this yeah. idea that there's there's these sort of intuitive ideas that saturate a society that mm -hmm. people go along with. Uh, like things drifting down a, a, the current in a stream. Uh, and, and that a lot of this is communicated to us through the arts, not through reason and rational argument. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, because Charles Taylor is hard. <laughs> yes, Charles Taylor. I, I love Taylor's thought. I wish he'd got better editors. Uh, yeah, his books could be two-thirds of the length and probably twice as powerful and compelling. Um, I, I think that... The, what I'm getting at there is the way most of us think about the world most of the time, in fact, the way all of us think about the world most of the time is intuitive. At a simple level, you know, after we finish this interview, I'm going to leave my study through the doorway. I don't really have any concept of how atoms and gases and solids, etc., work. I could give you a sort of working definition of them, but I have no idea why they work. Mm -hmm. And yet I intuitively leave through the door. I don't keep bashing myself up against the wall in an attempt to get out. Uh, and that applies the way we think about a lot of things, even the way we think about morality. Uh, when I look out the window, and, I, and let's say I looked out the window and I saw uh, somebody being beaten up by a gang of hooligans, I don't have to think is that right or is that wrong? I, I don't pull Immanuel Kant off my shelf and, and try to work through the moral arguments. I intuitively know it's wrong. Right. I intuitively know it's wrong. And I think what, what Taylor gets at with this, it's a rather awkward term, this social imaginary idea is the way most of us think about the world is intuitive. And that's because we, we've been taught uh, unconsciously in many ways, to imagine the world is a certain way, has a certain moral structure. And much of the way that comes to us is not through reading Immanuel Kant, it's through watching 
TV, it's through watching YouTube, it's through TikTok, it's through conversations with friends, it's through books we read, it's through songs we listen to. They shape our imagination, and that's the important thing. So, again, go back to the example of gay marriage. Uh, I've been asked numerous occasions over the years by students, can you give us an argument against gay marriage? To which my answer is always, I can give you several arguments against gay marriage, but none of them will work. Right. Because mm. almost almost nobody became convinced of the legitimacy of gay marriage because of an argument. Right. Well, not in the, not in the first instance. They became convinced because, hey, they, they watched Will and Grace. Yes. And they saw gay people presented in a very positive light. Maybe they have gay friends. Uh, you know, there's a gay couple live next door. They don't want to see them go to prison. They don't want to see the government harassing them. They're nice people. They they enhance the neighborhood. And those things shape our intuitions. We see it a lot in the church now where parents change their view on, on homosexuality because a beloved child has come out as gay. Right. And the parents struggle with that. And, you know, on, on a human level, I have every sympathy with the the agony involved there, and it's just it just shapes the imagination. My son is a lovely person. My daughter is a lovely person. And therefore, my moral intuitions get shaped by the, what I call, sort of the aesthetics of the situation, my empathy. These stories, these sitcoms, these human relationships we have, they cause us to empathize with people, and that shapes the moral, the moral imagination. Which has uh, tremendous practical implications for things like apologetics. You know, if you go to the, the bookstore and look at the apologetics books on the shelf, most of them are probably aimed at sort of the new atheism of the, the early 2000s. This very rational, uh, well thought through and sometimes well articulated arguments against the Christian worldview, which uh, is largely irrelevant today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the things that's that. I mean, it's very clear in the Bible you know, that, that unbelief is typically not the result of argument. Right. I mean, obviously, the most extreme example is, is Jezebel. Uh, there you have, you know, uh, let's think of Elijah as an, as an apologetics guy. On the top of Mount Carmel, what does he do? He proves that the very most charitable reading of Baal is Baal doesn't care for his people because he didn't bother to show up. More practically, I think he demonstrates Baal doesn't exist. So what does Jezebel do? Her reaction is not, oh, Elijah, I got it horribly wrong. I need to become a worshiper of Jehovah. Her reaction is, so help me if your head remains on your shoulders by sundown tonight. Uh, and I think there it pointed to the fact that, that unbelief is always deeply uh, embedded in a moral stance, mm -hmm. a way that the world is imagined to be, and and simply providing arguments or evidence won't cut it. And and I've always felt this about certain strands of presuppositional apologetics, that just proving to somebody that, that their worldview is incoherent on the basis of their presuppositions. I, I don't think that makes a whole lot of difference today. Right. Presuppositionalists yeah. snub their noses at evidential apologetics, but they can tend to do the same thing. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're appealing to the brain. Right. And I think that uh, uh, to the extent that apologetics is useful, it has to address the whole person. Uh, and when I teach at Grove, one of the, the I, I tinkered around with my humanities course, which is really a sort of modern history of modernity from a Christian perspective. The thing that I found most resonates with the students, Christian and non-Christian, is pitching that course, not in terms of debates over epistemology, 
but pitching that course in terms of freedom and belonging. All human beings want to be free, but we also all want to belong. Let's look at how modernity addresses that issue. Does it do it adequately? And the thing about freedom and belonging is they're not just abstract ideas. They strike us at our deepest existential level. And I found the, the students respond to something that embraces them as a whole human being rather than simply trying to address their, the, the, the coherence of their rationality, if I could put it that way. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Carl, let's let's keep going. We, we want to respect your time, brother, but we still have a few more questions. Uh, hey, can you explain the concept of uh, a culture of authenticity? Yeah, um, the, the, we live in one now. The culture of authenticity is the one that that sees uh, the it's based in this thing of expressive individualism. And that's the idea that the, what we are is what we feel inside. And we are most authentic when we outwardly express that. And that sort of shapes the the moral register or uh, framework of society. Take, for example, when a, a say, say a, a celebrity or a sports star comes out as gay and leaves their wife and kids to take up with their partner. It's very interesting the way the media present that. The family that's left behind is completely ignored. Mm. And what is championed is the individual who's finally broken free from the expectations placed on them by society to be themselves, to follow their dream, to follow their heart. That is emblematic of a culture of authenticity, a culture that that sees the moral thing as being that which allows the person outwardly to be that which they are inwardly. Now, there are limits to that. Uh, you know, one, one could make a case for saying so the serial killer is the most authentic person out there. Right. And, you know, very at that point, society would pull back and say, oh, no, there's certain kinds of authenticity that are very unpleasant and we don't want to tolerate. But as long as you're not obviously wreaking havoc on somebody else it's generally seen as a good thing to do to do it to express outwardly one's inward desire i would argue of course that much of the cultural authenticity does wreak havoc on other people um, the mother who had a son wakes up and finds the son's transition to being a woman mm. she now has a daughter that's traumatic yeah the kids who are the victims of parental adultery and divorce and, and find their home lives destabilized and shattered by their parents divorce they're the victims of this but we become adept at a society as pretending that that isn't happening as long as nobody's bleeding we might say then authenticity is is the moral thing and there's a there's a schizophrenia to that i, I mean at the same time we treat uh, you know, these these cultural pathologies is not worth mentioning, and yet words become violence. Yeah. Uh, we have yes. this, will you talk a little bit about this this idea, this the capital of victimhood? I mean, it's a it carries such cultural and moral power now to be a victim. How does that relate to this this uh, history of ideas? Yeah, well, of course, to you know. One of the things that marked the 20th century is that we be, we became much more aware of man's inhumanity to man. Just the other day in class, teaching on the doctrine of God, I showed a picture of little kids in, in Auschwitz. Uh, we, we are very aware of the wickedness that we are able to inflict upon each other. And, and the 20th century really made us, I think, aware of, of victims in a much bigger way than before. What has taken place, of course, though, is that we now have this, this expansion of victimhood because... Mm -hmm. 
you go back to Thomas Jefferson. You know, Jefferson makes this statement, you know, what does it matter if my neighbor believes in one God, no God, 20 gods, whatever, neither picks my pocket. Jefferson, a victim, is somebody who's getting their body beaten or having their properties, you know, mm -hmm. forcibly taken from them. Right. That makes them a victim. <laughs> For my grandfather, victimhood would have been, yeah, bodily suffering, not being able to get a job, those kind of things. Once you move into a realm where the most important thing about us is our feelings, where feelings, if you like, become as important as bodies, if not more important, then anything that hurts my feelings actually does me serious damage as well. And that's why there's such pressure on freedom of speech in today's society, because, you know, Jefferson would say, let's have freedom of speech because speech doesn't hurt anybody, doesn't damage their body, doesn't uh, take property from them. There are limits. You can't cry fire in a uh, packed movie theater. Crowded th yeah. packed theater. That's the, the, the classic one, because that would lead to bodily harm, et cetera, et cetera. But within those you know, pretty broad limits will allow freedom of speech. Now, use the wrong epithet, use the wrong pronoun. Oh, you dead named me. Uh, you've refused to recognize me. You've erased me. You've demeaned me. And we have to admit there's some truth to this. We all know that if, you know, think back to school days, I got into a few scraps, I'm sure, at, at, school, at school on the sports field, in the playground. I don't really remember any of them. I can remember some of the cruel words that were used about me, and I can remember some of the cruel words I used about other people. There is truth that words are powerful and hurtful. The thing now is, though, that once you've expanded this category of victimhood to include anybody who feels their feelings are being hurt or damaged or oppressed by somebody else's word, it's chaos. You get total chaos, which is where we are, and manifesting itself in the church now with the whole concept of spiritual abuse. Uh, mm -hmm. Spiritual abuse really exists, but I've had pastors ask me uh, in the last year, you know, so if I preach the law now and I call this out of sin, could I find myself being accused of spiritual abuse to somebody you know, who's indulging that in, in the congregation? So it's really becoming a very crazy mm -hmm. world on that front. Yeah. Well, brother, I think we have three more questions for you. Okay. Let's, let's try to knock these That's out. That's fine. This is phenomenal. Uh, so, um, you've, you've written articles. Uh, I think, you know, the thing that we love about you, Carl, is that you fire at both sides. You know, you're not interested in <laughs> appealing to a particular <laughs> online demographic, right? Um, so you've written, I once wrote an, I once wrote an article in favor of gun control and opposed to abortion and everybody hated it. That's right. what you call a Polish ambush. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still remember reading your book, I don't know, a decade ago, Republicrat, you know I mean? So this is very typical of you. Uh, and, and I think all careful thinkers tend to do this, right? They tend to hold things in balance in a way that less careful thinkers they just, they just don't have the ability to do that. So you have written an article for First Things in which you kind of point to the right-leaning evangelicals and say, hey, guys, critical theory is not under every rock, behind every bush, hiding in every shadowy corner. Uh, it, let, let's not make critical theory out to be this, this boogeyman. Uh, and, and you've also quoted Christ critical historians in some of the articles you've written uh, not positively because they're critical historians, but because they've done good work uh, as critical historians. Now, you attribute much of uh, the development of the rise and triumph of the modern self in your book to 
uh, the Frankfurt School and critical theory proper and all the manifestations of critical theory that have grown out of that since then. So how do you square that circle? On the one hand saying, hey, critical theory, it's not behind, you know, everything. It, it's not, you know, Satan. But on the other hand, like it is really responsible for a lot of the bad things that are happening in our culture today. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think as to the first, uh, I, I think one of the things we see, particularly in the way that so many what I would call deep debates are conducted at a very superficial level on something like Twitter, which yeah. is a medium that really is not suited to to deep and thoughtful discussion, right. uh, but to knee-jerk superficial reactions. What if you what do a thread, the, though? You do a thread with 13 <laughs> tweets. Anyway, go ahead. That's That must be almost a paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think what we see there is the emergence of a kind of rhetoric on both sides where uh, you know somebody says somebody acknowledges the existence of racism and immediately they're being accused of being a marxist on the, on the other hand you know if somebody makes a comment that's that's relatively conservative and they're immediately dismissed as white privilege or white right. gays or mm. something like this yeah so what you essentially have there is a cliche is being thrown around, often by people who don't really know what they're talking about, I suspect. Mm. But what you don't get is any kind of thoughtful interaction or engagement between the between the the, the two parties. So that I think would be my the, the answer to the first the first side that as Christians, we need a we need to try to get rid of the dehumanizing rhetoric and engage with arguments. Yeah. Uh, the second side of it is, uh, you know, critical theory. I'm, I'm working on a book for Broadman and Holman at the moment, on the origins of critical theory. Um, critical theory is not wrong about everything. Right. But just because it's right about some things doesn't mean that I want to declare myself to be a critical theorist or recommend that people read it. Right. Critical theory, as I see it, contains no insights that I can't get better elsewhere, for example. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would use an example of with a lot of Christians that I'm saying, why can't we use critical race theory? It, it's just a tool. It brings certain things. Well, I could say the same about Marxism. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Marx has insights, but I think it would be irresponsible of me as a Christian, irresponsible as a pastor to say, you know, Marxism isn't right about everything, but it has certain insights. So let's not bash Marxism. Right. Let's, you know, let's declare ourselves to be Marxists. I think we all understand that these labels are more than just a set of ideas. They carry a certain vision of what certain party allegiances, if you like, that I think we need to we need to avoid. Uh, I joke to students to say, you know, at my home, I've got a watch uh, in on in my wardrobe. It's broken. It is exactly right twice a day, which is more than can be said for any other watch I own. But I don't tell people, okay, go out and get yourself broken watches, you know, because broken watches have insight into time twice a day. Well, right. I'm going to say no. You, you just the only way I know that broken watch is right twice a day is guess what? I have a watch that works, right. that actually allows me to judge it. And I think we need to think of uh, critical race theory like that. I mean, this idea that, well, you know, I, I've heard it banded around a few times. You know, we need to. Uh, eat the meat and spit out the bones. The problem with that cliche is you can apply it to anything. Okay, let's have a church reading group reading Mein Kampf. Right. But it's okay 
because we'll just eat the meat and spit out the bones. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's not an argument. That's a cliche. And we Christians, we got to do better than that. We got to think more clearly. So yeah. I would say tone down the rhetoric and start to deal with ideas as ideas. Yeah. Uh, okay. Next question. One of the elders at my church read read this and, and and benefited from it greatly, and he said that this kind of reminds him of like a a book on the theory of everything. You know, he's very math and physics oriented, and so uh, he he's thinking you know quantum mechanics and all the, the theory of everything. And he says this book feels like that for our current cultural moment, uh, which is a pretty high compliment. Having said that, uh, you know, no piece of work is ever truly finished. You just have to submit it. You know, you yeah. just have to move yeah. on. So is there anything since you released this book that you feel like, uh, I really wished I would ha- I wish I would have included uh, this or that idea into the book because I've found that as I interact with people that, I, oh, I really left that out. Yeah, um, that's a good question. I, I suspect there's nothing I'd have added simply because the book was too long already. Amen. But it's, it is an incomplete narrative. And I, I say that at the start. I can't give an exhaustive, nar- exhaustive narrative. But right. you know, technology is a key part of yeah. how we get to where we are. Um, technology, again, we often tend to make the mistake of tech- with technology that we think it just allows us to do the same things faster and more efficiently. Technology actually mediates the world to us. It, the world is di- a technological world is experienced in a fundamentally different way to a non-technological world. Mm. So I'd, I'd want to add, you know, if I were to do a companion volume, I'd want to look at the role of technology. I've also become intrigued by uh, the concept of uh, Hartmut Rosa, the German critical theorist, uh, 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 so- social acceleration. Right. And Rosa yeah. makes the point that, generally speaking, technological innovations cause disruption in society, and it takes society's time to accommodate them. Society is destabilized for a while, then adapts to the technology, and, and a kind of stability sets in. The Reformation would be a good example. Printing press leads to disturbance, disruption, but a hundred years later, things are sort of settling down. The world is reintegrating around the printing press. Rosa's point about today is technological developments are happening so fast, society does not get a chance to reintegrate around them before the next one comes along. And he looks at families, he looks at the experience of work, and he looks at how we understand nations and essentially says, the feeling we all have that everything is constantly flying out of control and we can never keep up is due to the speed of technological development. And that, I think, plays into this feeling of the modern self, because if all of those institutions that we typically latch on to to understand who we are, if they're in continual flux, right. then we, too, are in continual flux. Right. And that's where new identities that can offer uh, speciously powerful communities LGBTQ, for example, can step into the sort of the void and give people a place to stand. It's what makes them so powerful. It's what makes Islamic fundamentalism so attractive, these kind of things. And, and that, I think, is an opportunity for the church because the church should be in the game of offering people a stable community in order to find themselves. Yeah. All right, I have a question for you, brother. Uh, after reading this book, uh, I felt like I had much greater clarity on understanding our cultural moment. Uh, I also felt a little depressed. Yeah, uh, It's a little overwhelming uh, right. and, and can induce pessimism when we see that this is a problem that's been kind of 
changing glacially for 200 years, it's a lot harder to think of how we're going to rewind that clock. Uh, so lest we be accused of, of sort of presenting a, a bunch of problems here without any solutions, how would you suggest that we engage the modern self evangelistically? Yeah, good, good question. I think, first of all, we need to address the church. Uh, and I think the key thing at this point is, is a kind of, this isn't to say we shouldn't be doing evangelism, but it's to say the church needs to, to sort of consolidate. Yeah, unless we, address, unless we address this in the church and make sure that we, you know, the, whole, the, the ship doesn't have holes in, in, in the walls, we, we won't be able to be effective evangelistically. Yeah, we need, and we need to do that. And I think that basic to that is that the church needs to be a strong community. It needs to be a creedal community and it needs to be a worshiping community. So there's a sense in which you want to say, you know, the answer is what the answer has always been. The church right. should be the church. Right. Amen. Uh, I do think, though, that we may need to to deepen, broaden, rethink our strategies in some quarters. Pedagogically, one of the things I've been pressing on pastors since the book came out is, you know, when you in a, in a world where biblical ethics correlated with the world's ethics, we were able to be pretty lazy about the way we taught ethics right. in the church right. because we were going with the flow. Now we're standing against the culture. And that means I think we've got to be more proactive and think harder about how we do this. And one of the things I've been saying to pastors is you know, when a young person says to you, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? Don't just point into the Bible verses that say it's wrong. That may be enough for them. And certainly that has to be at the center of any ethical strategy we have. Other things that will help reinforce that so that they see that the Bible doesn't just say homosexuality is wrong because God wants their gay friends to be really miserable or even they themselves to be really miserable. God says these things because it actually makes sense given the way the world he's created is structured. I went to a lecture a couple of months ago by a Catholic, it was by a Roman Catholic priest. I thought the title, I just got to go and hear this lecture. The title was uh, Defending the Church's Moral Teaching Today. And I was thinking, wow, I've got to listen to how a Catholic priest will do this because the bar yeah. is set pretty high for those guys with contraception and everything. Yeah. And the way he did it was he had at his fingertips statistics from secular sources that uh, revealed the carnage of repudiating biblical sexual ethics. And I think that can be very helpful in, in teaching the church, particularly on the sexual ethics front, that, hey, you know, that if you're going to pursue the life, a, a, a gay male lifestyle, you need to know what that's going to do to your life expectancy. You need to know what that's going to do to the physical makeup of your body. You need to know what it's going to do in terms of risk of STDs. I, Carl, what would you what arguments. would you say to someone who would respond to that by saying, "Oh, aren't you just appealing to people's reason?" No, because I'm I'm also saying this is what the Bible teaches. Okay, and you're saying this it's just borne out teaches. by reality. And what I'm saying is the this is what the Bible teaches. But you know, I asked a Mormon friend recently, "Why why don't you drink coffee?" And his answer was, "Well, God says we shouldn't drink coffee." End of story. Amen. I was not persuaded by that, <laughs> uh, but. It, uh, what I want to say is the Bible says this, and that should be enough. But I think it's also important that we show that the Bible says it because it makes sense right. as well. Right. 
Right. Uh, so to the person who says you're just depending on reason, I want to say no. I'd only be depending on reason if that was the only argument I was giving. If I was just giving a, hey, if you live this lifestyle, you're not going to be healthy. That's not the argument I'm giving. The argument I'm giving is this. God says you should behave this way. And guess what? Even secular sources provide evidence that actually if you don't flourish. So I'm serving to, to reinforce, if you like, the imagination of people. So I would suggest that kind of strategy. In terms of engaging the modern person more evangelistically, I've, I've already said that uh, my strategy in class has been that freedom and belonging thing. Everybody wants to be free and everyone wants to belong. Okay, let's see how well it's going for modern thinkers then. Let's see what it's led to. And then let's look at the Bible. Uh, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. If you are incorporated into the church, if you belong to Christ, paradoxically, you are free. So that's where I would go. You know, one of the strategies I would use with that. It feels very Acts 17-ish, Paul just kind of speaking the language of the idols of the time and uh, yeah. getting into the car and driving the car into the lamp pole. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Russell, anything else while we have the illustrious doctor with us? Uh, <laughs> you know, I, w one thing that I thought uh, was my mind kept jumping to while reading the book was was introspective. You know, if 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 so many evangelical Christians can look at this cultural moment and say, wow, this is a crazy 10 years this has been, and miss these long-term assumptions that have been baked into the fabric of our societal thinking, how many of those things are in my mind and in my heart right now right. that I'm not even aware of? Yeah. Uh, any comments on, on how we see those things coming up, even in, in Christian thought? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that as Christians, we are complicit in this this culture of authenticity and uh, partly because we do have an inner space. And, you know, at the same time as Rousseau is writing his uh, his works, Jonathan Edwards is writing the religious affections that that inner space is important. Uh, but we need to reflect on on how that inner space has been granted autonomy in our lives uh, rather than being shaped by the external word of God, by Christian practice, etc., uh, etc. Et what I hope that that does is it gives us a certain modesty when we criticize the world. First and foremost, we realize actually we're complicit. And the first thing we need to do is repent and lament. Um, I, I do think that it's hard to discern you know, the, the fish, you know, the goldfish, the old cliche is the goldfish is unaware of the water it's swimming in. That's true, and it's hard to discern this, this water that we're swimming in. But once you're aware there is such a thing as water, it liberates you somewhat to be able to spot it. And that's where self-examination come in. And it's where I think the corporate life of the church comes in, because you may not spot it in yourself, but your friend might spot it. Your wife might spot it. Amen. In so I think it brings us back to the importance of the communion of the saints and of the corporate church gathering. I also think it should reorient our, our strategy just to the world around. If my story is correct, then the problem is so deep seated and so comprehensive that just getting the right Supreme Court appointment or the right Congress or the right president elected is not going to solve the problem. All right, Rob. Dreher. Those things. Those, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm very much at one with Rod on these things. And I, yeah. I, I think that the the thing we, we need to do is reorient ourselves to to the local. Yeah. Uh, we all tend to and Twitter again, help. You know, we tend to think that we're speaking to a world audience. 
Well, no, speak to the speak to the audience that you live next Absolutely. to. Mm, yeah. Speak to the church you belong to. These are the people you can really influence. Yeah. And I think focusing on the local may well have national implications in the long run. Probably yeah. not, not in my lifetime, but sure. 100, 150 years down the road, who knows? Yeah. Well, that's really good, brother. Um, <clears throat> you know, before we, we hit before we pressed record, uh, you were telling us that you were hoping this book would actually be helpful for, in a very practical way for people like pastors like us. Um, and I want to tell you that just my reading of this book uh, has been helpful for me as a pastor. I mean, just taking the culture of authenticity, for example, uh, a culture wherein authenticity is the highest virtue, you know, the supreme virtue, uh, and everything else is kind of evaluated in relation to that. Uh, that concept has helped me as I deal with many of the young Christians in my church, uh, young in age and also new Christians. Uh, I just can't tell you how much I see that everywhere I look uh, in, in the local church. And, and, and so your book has helped me to do a better job of identify it's helped me to do a better job of identifying that and addressing it. And uh, I know that this book is dense. You're a smart guy. Uh, there's a lot of this. Is, it's scholarly, but it's eminently worth your time. It's worth wrestling through. There are some books like Das Kapital. You can buy it. You can put it on your shelf. It's not worth anything. It's not worth any of your time. Uh, and it's but a book like this, uh, you're gonna wrestle through, and it's gonna give you a headache, but it's gonna be good, and you'll come back and you'll you'll get more out of it every time you do. But before we leave, we should say that there is. Uh, a, a cookies on the bottom shelf version of this book coming out. Uh, when is that available? Uh, it's coming out in February. It's available for advanced order on Amazon already. It's called Strange New World. Nice. There's also going to be a study guide available. Or 10 minute lectures that I've done for Crossway. And uh, uh, Crossway won't be held to this, but my understanding is that Crossway are going to make the available for free oh, wow, to wow. anybody who wants them. So you can use them in schools or whatever. Uh, the game is not to make money here. The game is to try to get the uh, the material into the hands of people who think it, it will be useful. Crossway is really giving away a lot of stuff lately. They're storing up a lot of treasure in heaven. Uh, well, Carl, th thank you, brother. Thank you so much for making time for us and for our, our listeners and our viewers. Uh, before we go, I know that you're not a big social media guy, but if there was some place that you would want to direct our people to go read more of what you have to say, where would you send them? Um, uh, so I write a column for First Things every two weeks on the web and uh, an article or two for the print magazine each year. So First Things com would be uh, the place to go. And uh, if you go to the Ethics and Public Policy Center uh, website, eppc.org, they aggregate the articles of the fellows there. So anything I write will probably be posted there as I me there. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, Carl, thank you so much. Uh, this has been such a great conversation. We pray that the Lord continues to bless you in your, your writing ministry, your work in the local church, and in your work at, at Grove City College, brother. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Thank you.